Hello and welcome to Love is the Message, a podcast about music, the dance floor and counterculture. I'm Tim Lawrence and I'm joined as uh, always by Jem Gilbert. Hi Jem. Hello. Hello and we're very happy to be speaking today with a a good friend and a phenomenal uh, critic and writer probably the most imp- important writer that we know of in, in music and uh, someone we reference regularly on the show, and that is Simon Reynolds. Hi, Simon. Hi. Good to be with you. Very good to have you join us on the show. And I'll now just pass over to Jem to uh, properly introduce Simon and take and start off the first part of, of today's conversation. Okay, well, hi, everyone. If anyone listening doesn't know who Simon Reynolds is, it's ex- it's extraordinary and thrilling that we should have a listener who doesn't know who Simon Reynolds is because that would mean we're reaching we're reaching a completely different o- audience to the one I assumed we we ha- beyond the one I would have assumed us to have. So Simon is uh, indeed, as Tim said, I think probably uh, you know probably the, one of the most influential music critics in English of our generation at least, and he's someone who's been engaged both with cutting edge and the history of music culture for decades and always engaged with scholarly and critical and conceptual debates around it such that you know, the work of people like myself has been you know always in some sort of a dialogue with Simon's um, ever since I started so we're very excited to have him here Simon I guess first came to significant public attention working on the melody maker of which you eventually became the editor didn't you no no i didn't i never i never got anywhere near the levers of power no 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 i was i was a staff writer yeah you should have been an editor we would have been able history could have been different <laughs> well i could have probably bankrupted it much earlier than it you know <laughs> went, out, went out of business but um... yeah so f- for younger listeners the melody maker along with the new musical express was like the key music press print publication at the time in the 1980s and had been for decades the melody maker predated the nme actually and you know it was started in 1926 i think (laughs) yeah so all through the jazz era it was the most important music paper in britain and um, really a mainstay and and since then simon was one of the pioneers of music blogging and has written for many publications uh, different publications probably most notably The Wire in Britain and places like The Village Voice in the States. But he's also written now many books, including Blissed Out, The Raptures of Rock, The Sex Revolts, written with his partner Joy Press, Gender Rebellion and Rock and Roll, which I'm still teaching from these days, uh, Rip It Up and Start Again, the, the classic history of post-punk, which I would say I think you can make a pretty good case. It actually inspired a wave of musical interest in post-punk as well as just journalistic and hist- historiographical interest or it re- contributed to anyway it didn't, if what caused it uh, retro mania which hopefully we'll maybe we'll talk about a bit later a book about the the prevalence of retro culture uh, and also um shock and awe perhaps the definitive historical study of glam rock and right now uh, in the feed you listeners will probably be aware that we did an episode for patrons part one of our discussion of glam rock was our last episode and we'll be doing episode two on that in a few weeks so 
that it's very fortuitous because I, I can admit Simon is like the first person we ever mentioned whenever we first when we first started to talk about having interviewees on the show we said well obviously Simon at some point yeah obviously we'll get Simon and I and we didn't even it wasn't even a deliberate plan to have Simon on around the time we would be talking about glam rock it just happened fortuitously we just thought it was time we said we just got to the point we'd had several people and I said well we've got to have Simon now so oh yeah energy flash I completely missed that energy flash yeah, Energy Flash, the late 90s, you know, his late 90s book about dance culture, which again, is a really important contribution really to the kind of the narration of British and European and American and really global dance music history. And yeah, I would, I would mention in that as well that Simon's really, Simon also really has the, can be credited as being the critic who had any sort of a public platform who realised that Jungle, what had not yet been named drum and bass, was a significant musical form. This is still a, a story I tell my students to this day, that no, nobody, people like me were going out to sort of hardcore raves in Dalston and listening to Jungle on pirate stations, but uh, nobody was writing about it in the music press. It wasn't being, t- it was largely dismissed, you know, for pretty you know vulgar reasons by the, advocates of more polite forms of techno and house music like never mind the rock music and simon was really the person who started writing about it in a serious sense saying look this is really this is the the cutting edge of where music is going and that critical position had turned out to be fully justified to the point where now it just seems banal to say yes of course jungle and drum and bass was the most important thing coming out of britain or probably anywhere musically and that first half of the 90s and Simon sort of came to that from having been someone who was really who he I mean previous to that the music he'd been associated with was you know it was my bloody valentine it was sort of droney sort of psychedelic rock I remember being kind of uncertain of my opinions like I, I knew what I liked but I was you know there was a lot of people who seemed to be the connoisseurs of techno had other ideas but I felt very strengthened when I somehow through the grapevine it, I was told that my bloody valentine who lived in South London, actually not far from me, they were glued to the Pirates as well and, and were actually trying to make the sequel to, the follow-up to Loveless was going to have a jungle influence. So I was like, oh, that's fantastic, you know. It really sort of bolstered my, you know, confidence in my opinion that it was the thing to pay attention to. And it took them about 20 years before the music they made that had a jungle influence came out, didn't it, with that that album, MBV, I think it was called, right? About 10, 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, well, that's a fantastic story. I didn't know that. But what we're mainly going to ask Simon about today, or we're mainly going to ask you about, Simon, is things that are in some way related to the series' current focus on the 70s. Firstly, I think I would be really intrigued to hear you tell us a bit about like your formative years. So you're born in, what, 63? 63. Three, yeah, and, and and yeah, the first sort of pop music I can remember would be you know Yellow Submarine and Strawberry Fields Forever and things like that. And um, first years we were in London, then we moved out to this town, Berkhamsted in Hertfordshire. So sort of living in the you know the orbit of London in a way. My dad worked in London, but essentially also in the countryside. Quite a good way to grow up, really. And um, pop music wasn't a huge thing in my life until really until punk, but like I was aware of it and I liked it. You know, the first things I can really remember consciously, I mean, apart from the Beatles and, and things like that, really was um, was what everyone knows as glam. I didn't know it as glam, though. I was only nine. I just thought it was 
pop music. You know, that stuff did make an, an impression on me, you know, T-Rex. Uh, I was particularly taken by Top of the Pops used to do this thing. They used this effect. You know, I'm sure you know, like where everything goes kind of this plasticky, purpley color. Or it's like, I think it's called HowlRound, actually. It's like a video effect. And they, they would do it on various kinds of groups, but particularly seemed to do it on the glam groups. And it just seemed to fit them because suddenly Mark Boland becomes this sort of purple plastic being. You know, it's kind of psychedelic <laughs> still in a way, but like but tacky at the same time. And um, if you see old clips, actually they still used it a little bit during punk and they used it on X-Ray Specs, um, the day the world turned day glow. Like, you know, hey, the, wow. the studio goes kind of day glow at a certain point. Um, and it really fit the, you know, the plasticky themes of X-Ray Space lyrics. But yeah, I associate it with Gary Glitter and Mark Bolan and, and those sort of acts, you know, cheap yet genuinely kind of psychedelic effects that the BBC would put on. And they seem to instinctively be drawn to these, you know, the most artificial extreme groups, you know, the, the most glittery groups, they would use this effect on them. Now that's really interesting. We were talking on, on the episode about Glam, we talked about this re- very recent academic article by John Stratton, who basically says that glam rock was responding to the the context of the rolling out of colour television, that it was really integral to that process and that that was the context in which it became popular these all these sort of costumes and such and that would really that would really reinforce that idea i think color tv had come in but actually when i did a bit of research on it when glam was actually happening most people still had black and white tvs and in fact my family had a tiny little black and white tv but somehow my memories of it are in color i don't know how it's like some kind of memory backfilling, you know, because <laughs> yeah. you've seen so many um, subsequent videos of it in color, and, and I think a lot of the sort of annual, you know, there were these sort of pop annuals that would come out. Things I would see in W. H. Smith at that time, you know, would be these garish, uh, I don't know, Jackie annual pop thing. You know, uh, a lot of the girls' magazines, teenage girl magazines, were largely full of teeny boppers, and and so. I was seeing the garishness through that, but like actually the screen I was looking at was this tiny, tiny black and white TV that we had. Um, and that I think it was like 70% of the population still had black and white television. Which glam artists were you most taken with? I, I actually used this, it's a sort of personal mythos I've used because actually my very first book I refer to this. In the intro to Blissed Out, I talk about various pop epiphanies and one of them is seeing Mark Bowen being thrilled yet scared at the same time like sometimes unsettled he just because he had this sort of frizzy hair and he was wearing i don't know what he was wearing something that looked kind of metallic and futuristic and i think he was probably playing something like children of the revolution or 20th century boy actually one of his more like abrasive intense songs i don't i have no idea what he was actually playing but you know he seems startlingly odd so Mark Bolan, The Sweet. I think I was quite taken by Bowie. The thing that really blew me away was when they reissued, actually reissued um, Space Oddity and it got in 75 and it got to number one. So, uh, so it was a hit in the 69, but then it was reissued. That really entranced me, just uh, such a strange, eerie song, the scenario of an astronaut drifting off into the void fatalistically the strange detonations of bass and the, the arrangement, everything about it was so kind of eerie. So I was, I remember being entranced by that Bowie song in particular. But you weren't a huge Bowie fan in, I mean, this is one of the, one of the things you sort of seem to, that seems to come through in the, in the glam book. I wasn't at the time. He was part of the furniture of pop strangers. And, you know, later on, I 
grew to really love low and I particularly like the run of singles around scary monsters, you know. Um, I know I've been someone who like sort of believes in Bowie in the way that, you know, people believe in Dylan or believe in, you know, they sort of like as a savior figure, but he's, he's really fascinating. And through writing the book, I actually grew to sort of vaguely identify with him in the sense that he kind of grew up on the periphery of London. He was like, you know, sort of this hungry, you know, hungry young mind thing, you know, where you're like casting around for things to be excited by as a teenager and, you know, getting into surrealism or something, you know, and then you discover something else, you know, that sort of, I think it's sort of a sort of suburban emptiness. <laughs> I actually live in suburbia now and I think it's great, but at the time I just like, seemed very boring and dead and, uh, you know, bourgeois living death was like a kind of phrase that I would trip off my tongue, you know, in those days. So um, that sort of thing of, you know, I guess Bowie was into jazz and into Tibetan Buddhism and then he got to the occult. He's like sort of ravenously searching for things to be excited by, wasn't he? That seems to be his mode. He was an artist. He was an artist. I mean, I was crazy about Bowie as a kid, but this, yeah, completely. It lasted about four or five years. But anyway, this is about you, not me. You know, so like something like the Osmonds' Crazy Horses is like a really exciting record with that sort of shrieking synth sound in it. So I'd be excited by that, you know. I think it's hard to sort of remember what you were excited about and what you later discovered and you sort of write into the narrative. I think I would have been quite struck by, you know, Rock On by David Essex because it's such a strange sounding record. I remember a bit later I realised ELO. So general 70s excess, artifice. But I didn't buy any records then. I, didn't, I never bought records until much later. The only record I bought <laughs> before punk was the theme from The Sting, which is like kind of a, <laughs> an embarrassing start to one's <laughs> pop career, you know. This song from, when was it, 1902 or something? Or 19, might even be from the 19th century. Oh, I'm not sure. Um, it's, it's Scott, jo jo Scott Joplin, isn't it? Uh, the Entertainer. <laughs> Excellent. That's quite. I think that's a good choice. That's a good first record. Yeah, I think it's, you should be proud of that. I bought my first record was Shawaddy Waddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah you know, right time. Black dance music, isn't it? Really? Yeah, it is. It's very important. It's the first. It's the first black dance form to become so globally popular. And uh, I was I'm really interested to hear you make that comment about suburban boredom because it's a. It was a comment I made on a on a different podcast, actually, on an episode of ACFM just recently. It's something that now seems quite hard to relate to, in a way, and quite almost quaint, that mm. the suburban boredom uh, as the thing you are against, that you are sort of defining yourself against, is a really big theme in pop music. Like, really, I would say from like the early 60s through to the sort of late 70s, it's a really important part of the context, it seems to me. Yeah, I mean, it's weird because when, you, when I look back, um, uh, it seems like quite a nice way to grow up. Yeah, it was. It was the best way. <laughs> but yeah, I do remember, you know, generally feeling like I was surrounded by banality and the city was where everything was happening. 
but I was always obsessed with something like, you know, before music, I was like, I wanted to be a cartoonist. And I was, I was obsessed with Windsor and Newton Indian Inc. I used to stare longingly through the window at uh, the range of Windsor, Windsor and Newton products. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, then I was into science fiction. I had a period, uh, before that, I had a period where I wanted to be the next Michael Payne. And I was obsessed with Monty Python because a lot of their humor is about, you know, accountants and, and suburbia and the absurdity of bureaucracy and, you know, the sort of stiflingness of Englishness, but then the madness that breaks through and the madness under the surface or the absurdity. So that really appealed to me, you know, um, the idea of silliness, you know. It was a kind of comic surrealism that they introduced. Um, so I was obsessed with that and science fiction. And then the, then the music was, I sort of stopped with music. That was the sort of um, the thing where um, I sort of finally decided this was the most exciting thing in the world. And because I'm not a musician, the way to have any role in it would be to a music journalist. So when did it, when did you get really excited about music then? You know, I mean, I loved pop songs and, you know, and, and, and stuff like that and watch Top of the Pops every week, sometimes listen to the radio, but to buy it and to believe it was like some kind of, rebellious, exciting, topsy-turvy, turbulent sort of world really was was with punk. And then, you know, about, about sort of a year after getting into punk, I discovered that there's this thing called the music press. I didn't know it existed. Me and my brothers were really into the Sex Pistols. And then I just saw a copy of Melody Maker in W.H. Smith and Malcolm McLaren's face on it. And it was like this, it was the final part of a three-part series on the McLaren story, basically, and the whole story of the Six Pistols. And so I bought that as the first music paper. It's by a journalist called Michael Watts, who was one of, I discovered, later was one of the great writers about music during glam rock. He's the one who did the interview where Bowie says, uh, I'm gay and I always have been. And, uh, and Bowie later said, it was that piece with Mick Watt that really, that really ignited the sparks of my career. So um, <laughs> he's great, a great writer. And I did, interviewed him for the glam rock book. But yeah, I read that piece about it was like the, it was the latter part of McLaren's career when he managed the slits briefly, the making the great rock and roll swindle. I read that about a dozen times, you know, the story, and I, that's where I saw the words "the situationist" for the first time. Right, I've said this before, but I thought they were a band. You know, I wanted to get the, <laughs> the records by the situationists. They sounded very, very subversive, <laughs> even more subversive than the Pistols. You know, then after that, I started reading the music papers. I'd like to like ask then, just in relation to what you've talked about so far. So, so how, in what form did you first encounter punk then, and what what age were you? That was what fifteen, sixteen. I was like fifteen, I think fifteen, going on sixteen. My brother, a few years younger than me, I went to a public school, private school, and um, my brother went to state school and was accordingly hipper and more streetwise than I was. And he was the one who brought the uh, Tim uh, is his name. Funny, yeah, I have a, brother, a late brother called Tim and a brother called Jeremy. So on the screen here, it's Simon, Tim, Jeremy. Eerie. <laughs> so yeah, my both my younger brothers were into punk. Um, they got the Pistols, uh, Crass, they were really into anarcho-punk. Not in '78, though, were they? Not no, so but yeah, they, he brought back he brought back the Pistols and Ian Jury, like a live concert mm. of Ian Jury, uh, and then he got the Ian Jury album. And in both cases, it was really the swearing 
Where were people hearing this? Was it on the radio? Was it from friends at school? Was it on the TV? Like, how well, people... this was in my brother's bedroom. And then... Where was he getting it? Oh, he, I don't know. He got Some friends turned him onto it. And he came, initially he taped it off people. Then he bought things. He bought X-Ray Single. We bought Buzzcox, Noise and Noise. I was very taken by Noise and Noise just because it had this thing where it goes, you know, does it bother your mother and father? I can't remember the exact words. And then the guitar comes in like this burst of noise. I thought that was very clever and sort of meta, you know, the idea of a, a single that's noisily annoying and designed to annoy your parents and perhaps your older brother who's into Eric Clapton and things like that. But it actually enacts that with the way the guitar comes in. And then, I mean, I just keep talking about that sort of meta thing with punk. I was really taken by the Rosillos were on Top of the Pops with a song called Top of the Pops, and they refer to the charts as the stock market for your hi fi. impotence of being on on top of the pops you know reflexively talking about being on top of the pops in this sort of vaguely defiant or cheeky way just was really blew my mind and uh, it's one of those things where you remember the performance and, you know sometimes you see it years later on youtube and it looks completely different but this actually was exactly as i remembered it like i had it made such an impression on me that i remember that the way she um faye fife was moving on and her gestures and everything, and uh, it was quite, kind of eerie. So my brother, Tim, he introduced me to all this stuff, and then I started buying it myself, you know, buying Slits album. You know, Slits seemed very exciting. The name was pretty abrasive. Could you buy that in Birkenstead, or did you have to go into Yeah, Stella? we had a really good record store, whose name I forget, where I found all these things. You know, they would have, you know, they'd have Scritty Pretty records, the Crass records. There was, you know, a contingent of, punky people in our town particularly later with the crass you know visible the stencils they'd have the stencils on their jackets and all that there were two toners there were most of the youth fads and, and what do you think was the appeal of punk in that moment because it's really because it, it later takes on this status in the kind of collective memory of a lot of people as this extraordinary event this kind of uh, like the like the typical event and music culture i mean you know when even by the time you know all the dance music is happening in britain in the 90s the, the first question which lots of journalists want to ask like continually is is this a bigger deal as punk i was too young i mean i remember the sex pistols being a thing 
only to the extent that me and my friends had heard there was a band called the Sex Pistols and they were very rude and wasn't that funny because I would have been like six or seven. So I was too young to really experience that in the moment. But I suppose I'm, I'm always intrigued by what, you know, how did it feel? Like what felt like the appeal of it? In what sense did it feel like something necessary or urgent? Because obviously it wasn't for everybody. I mean, it's also always the case that, you know, there were people who bounced off it. There were people who weren't interested in it. So what, what was its appeal for a 15, 16-year-old in Berkhamstead at, at that moment. Middle-class kid, yeah, in suburbia. Yeah, I, it's interesting because, you know, there's all these overlays and there's what you've read about or thought later. I, I, I always try to take it back to what I felt at the time, if I can. And a lot of it was how nasty and destructive it was and sort of abhorrent. So we would, you know, the tales of the Sex Pistols vomiting at airports, Sid Vicious cutting himself up on stage. I mean, and bear in mind, I didn't know anything about Iggy Pop or previous extreme rock performers you know later on uh, i mentioned crass and i kind of like crass as well but my brothers were really into it and that was like you know anarchism that was proper anarchism but the kind of anarchy that the sex pistols represented was chaos you know it wasn't like self-rule particularly or you know organized workers uh, managing their own lives as crass kind of wanted to bring about collectives and communes and stuff you know it's much more like the dam smash it up you know, it's funny because the dam were quite a cuddly outfit, really. But uh, that, that sort of destructiveness was part of it, I think, and just boredom. I think I grew up in a middle class family. It was, I, I always say, uncomfortably off. Like we weren't, you know, we didn't have a car, but you know, we were essentially middle class. We lived stable lives. So actually, the idea of things like unemployment and things like that were not. I actually don't think that was actually a really big part of punk, because if you look at the figures. Like that. I read a book recently and someone said that happiness levels in the UK in 1976 were at their highest in the post-war period. Yeah. And, they went, mm. and you know, and, and it was unemployment, but it was nothing like, nowhere near what it was during Thatcherism. I think it was a discourse of, de- I think mean, it was a discourse of decline in the country that punk seized on and amplified because it was exciting. The idea, I think it was an excitement in the idea of social collapse and chaos that's a really interesting idea actually that's really interesting i mean my position on that in relation to punk has really gone back and forth over the years so i remember when i was sort of late 80s through to the late 90s really i was a raver my position in relation to that was it was just ridiculous like what were they complaining about compared to how hard things are now it was sort of pathetic that they were screaming they want to try having it really hard and my sort of my general analysis was well you know, we we were just going to take ecstasy and dance because, like, you know, having having toddler fits on stage hadn't achieved anything. We everything had gone, and then, but then more recently, I mean, my position has been a bit more. Well, actually, if you look at the history of what's happened, especially what's happened to young people, just what's happened to like young people's wages and living costs, like precisely since 1976. Well, actually, that intuition that actually something was being taken away, something that had been extended some set of privileges and promises that had been extended to people in the young people in, more than anyone in the post-war period, it was being withdrawn, it was being taken away. And they were right, actually, to intuit that they were at the thin end of a very long wedge, that young people are still at the fatter and fatter end of today. But then what you've just said adds another, di- potentially another dimension, actually, because uh, the historian David Edgerton, he's written this very interesting book, just a few years ago and his whole argument is that indeed 
you look at Britain in the 70s, it wasn't in decline at all. That actually the Britain, the post-war in, in project of a kind of welfare state and a mixed economy had been very successful. Uh, rebuilding British industry after the war. Actually, you know, there, Britain was facing some competition from Germany and Japan. It had some issues to contend with, but and that, that discourse of decline was was wielded by the right basically in order to legitimate like what would become like just an all-out assault on the manufacturing base as a way of undermining the labour movement. And you know, people who wanted actually a post-industrial economy promoted this idea that we were in this kind of terminal decline that there was no way of rescuing the manufacturing sector and so what you've just said actually resonates really interestingly with that it meshes very interestingly with that analysis that there's something that punk in a way was part of the part of what was going on in punk was actually it was participating in this discourse of what Edgerton calls declinism yeah i mean there was a lot of there was a fair amount of turmoil whether it's strikes or northern ireland but I think, you know, if you listen to Anarchy in the UK and he's going on like, is this the IRA? Is this the UDA? He's using all these acronyms of guerrilla movements. He's sort of wielding them against the idea of the UK. I, you know, I thought it was the UK. I think there's a sort of getting high off the scenario of collapse in a weird way. When, when he sings No Future, there's a sort of glee to it as well as, you know, it's not like sort of wringing his hands. It's very different actually in mood to Special's Ghost Town. genuinely sort of mournful and is inspired partly i think they partly they were gone to kingston jamaica and, and seeing things there but also coventry and seeing businesses shuttered and clubs closing down because of um, no one had spare money in their pockets that's genuinely about unemployment uh, and and those sort of things but um, i actually came across a clip the other day i was watching a Someone had made a, color, a compilation of things from the show, um, So It Goes, I think it was. And there's a little interview clip with Danny Baker and Mark Perry of Sniffing Glue. And to, they say, this is done in like 77, and they're saying like, yeah, you know, this whole thing about kids on the doll, it's not us. Um, he worked in a, a, as a clerk in a bank. Danny Baker had a job. I think he said something like, I have my own TV, you know. <laughs> like, so he's like actually earning money. So a lot of the people involved in punk certainly the early stages of it, I think, were, you know, there was an art school contingent. I don't think, I don't think Johnny Rotten was on the dole. He, he worked, he looked after kids. I think he did work in a daycare centre at one point. You know, he quite uh, angry for other reasons, I think. You know, there's other reasons to be, you know, I guess the Jubilee would be something that would disgust you, the sense of stasis, the upper classes still in control. There, there are other reasons, but I don't think like the, the economic thing is really a reason why punk happened now that's very interesting okay the other things that had many motivations like so many different people you know some people got into punk because it was you could get into a ruck at a gig other people had these you know situations ideas there were arty people who liked the idea of doing extreme things on stage so it's like many 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 motivations 
And we have talked quite a bit about post-forwarders and partly in relationship to DJ culture uh, and, the, and, you know, what comes to be known uh, somewhat problematically as disco. So I think we can, we can dwell on this and it's whether you, whether, you know, that what's going on is the, the disruption of like the predictability of the world everyone's growing up in. And it's, it's the early progressive part of post-Fordism, which to say you don't have to live your life according to a completely regulated sort of society. So were you trying to rebel against your parents? What did your parents make of it? Did you have a sense that there was a norm out there that was just kind of oppressive? Or was it, was it, were you part of a subculture? Um, I wasn't really part of a subculture. I was on the left. I remember writing some kind of critique of Dickens for his anti-workerism <laughs> in, in sixth form. I don't know. I was like, yeah, I think at one point I considered myself to be a communist. And then I got very interested in situationism and anarchism, only to discover that anarchists were on the whole somewhat boring and ineffectual people. So I, I was like, you know, politically out of home. I mean, yeah, I would join CND, I joined the Labour Party. I, a bit later on, I did actually canvass in one election when I was a student, but like not really have any clear sense, you know, perhaps not that interested or aware of policies beyond the vague idea of, you know, shouldn't let these industries die and, and, and communities, you know, the government should keep these industries going. I didn't really get into the weeds of understanding you know, I was probably, you know, more excited by the idea of everything being driven by class, you know, class being the motor of history and, and some vague idea of revolution, but it, I didn't, but it wasn't very thought out. I had no idea how to get there, if you know what I mean, <laughs> what the political steps are to get to this fair society beyond voting for the Labour Party. <laughs> Uh, well, that that route is currently closed. So, <laughs> to a fair say. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, well, um, if I, I I wanted I wanted to ask a little bit then about um, if if you I mean it's all right if you don't have any reflections on this, but if you have any reflections on the way in which this period, in particular the pre-punk seventies, has been sort of imagined and remembered in, in subsequent phases say of music journalism and music criticism i mean maybe you'll just say this is a maybe this is just a false memory that maybe it's just not maybe i'm just wrong to think of it this way but my sense is you know there's a there's a long period in the 80s and into the at least into the late 90s when it largely there's a sort of assumption that punk was this sort of necessary year zero that was a symptom of the total decadence of culture in the first half of the 70s and therefore all that stuff could be dismissed and it's only really from the kind of late 90s onwards that in various ways there's been a sort of revaluation, a sort of reorientation. Because, you know, it was definitely a thing for Mark, you know, Mark Fisher. It was definitely a, it was a big sort of process that Mark went through of, of realising, though, that actually the, the, politically and culturally, there was all this really interesting stuff, which I suppose starts with Roxy Music, actually. But then it becomes all, you know, more and more stuff from the early 70s. And this idea that it was a dismissible period had sort of come from the music press, basically. It had come from that version of history. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely, as you say, I think the dismantling of this idea started a bit earlier. Like, I actually was beginning a bit in the late 80s. Uh, and in fact, that was something we tried to do at Melody Maker, rehabilitate prog rock and, and, and things. But um, when I entered the music pre press as a reader, as a reader of music press, it was completely given that you could ignore the whole pre-punk 70s and most of the late 60s. 
except for Bowie. There was a couple of, there were a few things that, you know, the Velvet Underground, Bowie. Stooges, Bowie. Yeah. Stooges, yeah, you know. And then maybe a little bit later, the idea that Roxy Music had been good sort of entered my consciousness. But yeah, absolutely a complete wasteland, except for, you know, a few weirdos like Captain B. or whatever. But yeah, all the prog rock was dismissible. Glam rock was, was not really reappreciated much until the new pop thing was that when you had groups like ABC either talking about or being talked about in terms of the new rock scene, you know, and most late sixties music would have been considered either sort of, uh, I don't know, bloated blues, wank or, or acid rock rubbish, you know, like I can distinctly remember when I started to get interested in, in the sixties and I can distinctly remember hearing a Hendrix song and feeling this, sense of going across my internal taste boundaries like it was like the forbidden like the solo the solo and it's funny it's purple haze and i actually counted how long it was it's only 20 it's only like 21 seconds or something but it felt so excessive and indulgent becoming a music fan i was into like this pared down music like the gang of four and the delta five and everything was minimal and and you know you didn't have any guitar solos yeah everyone hates i remember having been confidently told by the guy in our local record shop everybody hates guitar solos this is this is a given fact, and I I can, I can remember um, at that time for some reason God knows why in in the early eighties, Freebird by Leonard Skinner was was released as a single, and became a hit. Got to like number sixteen or something. And I remember it was the most disgusting thing I'd ever heard. It was just like I don't think it was even the full nine minutes, you know, with all the dueling guitar. Mm-hmm. But like that was as a post punker, this idea of you know you know it's like three guitars trading solos it just seemed revolting to me then some years later you know in the 90s i heard it again i was like wow this is great <laughs> and um i love it and actually would even play a guitar to it <laughs> <laughs> um but um it was all forbidden you know heavy metal was heavy metal was completely like considered virtually fascist music it was considered phallocratic misogynist another sort of thing that i kind of where i had this sort of inkling there was something interesting in the music was when I sort of heard a whole lot of love and I was like oh there's this weird bit in the middle that's kind of interesting and then you can't deny the riff It was like going into a forbidden zone. Really, you were encouraged to think of all you know, Pink Floyd, all the all the music of the say yes were absolutely, you know, oh terrible. You know, and so never without ever ever having heard these things, you just dismissed them from, you know, the list of things you would want to acquaint yourself with. So, so when would that Hendrix moment have been, do you think? I would have been like 83, I think, because that was the year I also heard The Birds and I heard um, Love, Forever Changes. And I think actually, strange, I was like, a lot of people were discovering this music then because you started to get these indie groups coming through. I guess there were groups at REM already who were clearly Birds influenced. And um, there's something in the air, you know, this sort of jangly 60s thing. But then it sort of, you know, you started sort of checking out, I don't know, Sid Barrett, era Pink Floyd was okay. Later, Pink Floyd, no, still forbidden. I only heard Dark Side of the Moon in the 90s. It was that strong a prohibition. 
which is odd because I liked money as a child. It was on the radio. I, I, sort of, I was quite taken by it, sort of anti-materialist theme. Yeah, I'm still waiting for the the full pro the full rehabilitation of those late those very late Pink Floyd albums because they're they're really they're very like politicized they're very very bleak and harrowing aren't they and, yeah. and uh, sort of uh, c- kind of cousins in a way to punk, punks in lots of ways not musically but like in the bleak dispirited viewpoint that was my experience growing up to a certain extent just hearing quite a lot of rock music and actually. I'm trying to remember the year when I heard Leonard Skinner Freebird, but I was very into that, and I was weird. I was kind of into ACDC, just yeah. Like, so I can't quite work. I just need to try and think what years I was hearing all that. But it was, I think it was it was may have been before Bowie, but it may have been afterwards a bit. So early late seventies and early eighties. Anyway, what I'm more interested in than than trying to work out when I heard ACDC is yeah when like when black music kind of broke how that broke through onto some sort of horizon for you. In an odd sort of way, it's actually through Ian Jury and the Blockheads because a lot of their material was rooted in funk and actually some of it was a little bit rooted in the blues. But yeah, they were like funky and it was just sort of undeniable that they were playing the same music as the Jacksons and Chic and those things. So I remember liking those things on top of the pops, really like Donna Summer, uh, I Feel Love. And then I, I, at a certain point, I started buying it as well. Like I, I think maybe the first funk record I bought was "Funky for Jamaica" by Tom Brown. I started also buying older disco things, you know, uh, that you could get secondhand and Donna Summer albums and stuff. So this was going on as I was, you know, getting into post-punk. I remember that James Brown became a reference point, and at that point, James Brown records were out of print, and I actually had to buy a live, live in Tokyo album. By James Brown to hear, you know, Papa was a, a brand new bag and and Sex Machine, all these things actually is these sort of live versions in Tokyo from the late seventies. There was discovering the past, but the rehabilitation of the rock early seventies, late sixties that happened, you know, for me anyway, the mid to late eighties. And there was something sort of forbidden and exciting about it, and even things like Fleetwood Mac, you know, there was something kind of oddly enigmatic and interesting about rumours and about this band. Yeah, after all that angularity, after all that trebly angularity, like rumours almost seemed exotic, I remember. Yeah. So it was sort of, and there, you know, there was also a sort of game you play as a critic or a hipster, a game of kind of finding odd things that no one else had rehabilitated. That was kind of already beginning to start in the late 80s, this sort of thing that, you know, then a group like St Etienne would make a whole aesthetic out of it we don't like the doors we hate uh i think they didn't like parliament funkadelic because it was too messy but we do like you know david essex records or you know um it's sort of competitive rehabilitation or revisionism i think it's a slightly uh, uh sophisticated verging on decadent sensibility where you're playing games with rock history but yeah the, the, the given position on rock before punk was it was almost completely a wasteland. But then finally, eventually, you've just come sort of full circle. And so I think, your, was it your last full book was, was Shock and Door? Or have I missed yeah. one since then? So you've written an entire book, like and the, the biggest book anyone has done about, about <laughs> yeah. glam rock. So what's the, motive, what's the motivation, firstly, for in 2016 doing a book about glam? 
Well, I kind of fancied it, and uh, I, there were various sort of reasons I felt like it was timely. The interesting glow actually went back to this period in the mid-80s when I was doing a fanzine uh, in, with some of the people who I'd carry on working with at Melody Maker, like David Stubbs and Paul Oldfield, and um, we collectively developed this interest or fascination for glam. And we found all these things in jumble sales, singles, groups we were obviously well-known, like Sweet, but sort of lesser ones like this group, Hello. Gary Gessler Records seemed very strange to us. And, you know, there were various pop annuals you could buy in jumble sales from the time. And we just became fascinated by it. Alice Cooper was someone I, I you know, that's someone I had remembered at the time as being scary. School's out. You know, he seemed very alarming. And then you so, so you sort of rediscover that sort of childlike excitement about it, but it's overlaid by a more, you know, it would have been 19, 20, 21 then, a sort of theoretical interest in it as, oh, it was this period of excess, artifice, sort of insanity, you know, like top of the pops and you see Alice Cooper talking about, you know, smashing the school down, you know, and school's out forever. So it became fascinating. That. So it sort of was in the back of my mind as something I was interested in. And then um, in, in uh, I, I got into interested in it through doing the retro book because there was a chapter on the rock and roll revival as one of the first times that pop music looks back. I mean, the rock and roll revival of the 70s. Yeah, looking back to the 50s, you know, and that overlaps quite a bit with glam. Some of the groups I was worrying about were glam groups, you know, or Bowie would... Uh, I don't think Bowie did. Did Bowie do any rockabilly? I'm not sure. John, I suppose John, I'm, I'm only dancing is kind of a rockabilly beat. But yeah, several of the groups at that time, you know, there's even a bit of 50s thing in Roxy music at times. And the more I thought about it, the more I could see it, the, obsession, the obsessions with fame and artifice and decadence seem to relate to a lot of what was going on in pop culture in the 21st century. The sort of extreme theatricality the way that you see these award shows, MTV award shows, and like a performer singing a song hanging upside down from a sort of tightrope, you know, it's not a good position for voice production. You know, <laughs> you know, professional singers would not, you know, would not normally hang upside down from a tightrope. But someone did that. I can't remember who. There was, I think, what one R&B performer had like pull ropes and like came on stage like you know, it's a real circus type spectacle. Um, but in the music as well, a lot of rap particularly had themes to do with fame and Kanye West, you know, uh, Drake. His whole career was predicated on fame is soulless and empty, you know. So I could connect that in my mind with fame by Bowie. And, and just I felt like there was some kind of neo-glam moment going on in pop music today. But was this something, was this, was this a sort of music that you felt like as a critic is really important music? Or was it just more of a phenomenon that you thought needed, that you could write a book about? I kind of had a sense it was more of the, more of the latter than the former, that you were kind of, you weren't that into the kind of individual star equality. I love a lot of the music. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it, 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 to me, it was such a total package of like, you know, I love the music. The clothes are interesting. I actually think the clothes is one aspect of glam that's, often aged the worst and i you know i'm not a particular fashion oriented person i find fashion as an industry interesting to think about and the fashion economy of revivals and things i got interested in that through retromania but but you know 
the excessive glam, but I like the themes of decadence. I found were particularly interesting the way that, you know, the movie Cabaret was such a touchstone at the time. There's an interface between glam and science fiction. There's, I, I did want to take, I wanted to see if I could take it seriously as music and sort of say, well, what defines it as music? And I just enjoy a lot of it. You know, I enjoy listening to Mott the Hoople and it's often the, the, the teenage teeny bop stuff, like the sweet, I just think is amazing music and it's funny as well like they have a song teenage rampage where they're talking about you know this sort of bubblegum fantasy of a teenage revolution uh sort of weird echoes of 68 <laughs> and um, also my one of my favorite things to do is to uh spend weeks and months reading old music papers so this seemed like a very good excuse because you always find out there's so many things that are forgotten and they've been left out of the narrative as it's come to be told as received wisdom. But there's all this other stuff going on and strange anomalous activities and finding out who people thought were part of glam. Like initially people thought, not journalists included Rod Stewart and ELP because they were quite the showman, you know. Uh, Keith Emerson was quite a showman on stage. You know? They were considered part of this new visuality, this new putting on a show thing. It was kind of unformed and there were sort of these outlier groups that people don't, Talk about since like um, Sensational Acts, Harvey Band, big, big band at that time, one of the biggest concert draws, put on these very spectacular shows, anticipated elements of punk, but also a very sort of glam and theatrical in other ways. Group no one talks about now, but they were like, you know, they headlined Reading. Um, they were like one of the most popular live bands of that time. So I like that thing of rediscovering groups that have dropped out. And do you think you have an overall thesis about glam? Or is it just a convergence of interesting factors? My approach, you know, is the opposite of our late mutual friend, Mark Fisher, where Mark had a whole aesthetic about glam, and it was quite defined on a quite narrow bunch of instances. Roxy Music, Grace Jones, Japan. I don't think he even liked Bowie that much. You know, he had a sort of glam lineage uh, with Roxy at the apogee japan as well as successes whereas my approach is a bit more like the more of a historical approach which is like what was it well it was this messy field of activity uh that overlap with other things hard rock singer songwriter prog i have a whole thing about roxy you know are they a prog band are they a glam band what are they well they're both so for the chapter on roxy i structure it so that i have a double chapter so the first half of it is treating them as a progressive group, like doing experimental stuff, you know. You know, it's a sort of um, Phil Manzanera, Brian Eno-centric view of Roxy. The second half is the ferry-centric view of Roxy as this sort of very stylized, fashion-aligned kind of thing. And then I look at it as a discourse, you know, and that's why I love going through music press and seeing these words that came up. Like, like there's, um, there's an interview with Bowie where they early in his career where they say, what do you think of these three words? Funk. And he says, amusingly, I have nothing to do with funk. In two years' <laughs> time, he's doing fame and, and young Americans like, uh, camp, I can't remember what it says about then, and punk is another word. One thing I've discovered through doing this book is just how much punk was a buzzword in the music press for five years before punk happens. It's constantly referenced. Susie Quattro is described as punk. They're all reading Cream magazine. They're all fans of not all of them, but some of the writers are fans of Lester Bangs, and they're picking up this term 
from American critics and it's banded around so much. Well, I didn't realize that actually. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's like it's like it's like a, a rehearsal, you know, and then the New York Dolls is like a rehearsal for punk. Iggy, you know, the Raw Power album, which is his second go round, that's sort of treated as a as a rehearsal for punk as well. I mentioned the Sensational Axe Harvey band. They had like, you know, imageries of on stage of a kid spraying graffiti and this sort of tenements and um, you know, kids on the street, the dead end kids. You know, it's comic book, teenage de delinquent thing, you know. It was part of the discourse. But yeah, you know, all these terms, um, the term decadence is, is, is such a buzzword at that time. And um, Lou Reed does, you know, the Berlin album. Alice Coombe has this obsession with cabaret. You know, I think he even does a record with Liza Minnelli at one point. So yeah, as a historian, I just try and immerse myself in all the mess of it. There's something post post countercultural about it, I suppose, on some sort of. I mean, it grows yeah. out of, but it's an extension of. But it it like loses the the project of changing the world or overthrowing the state. After the fact, I came up with a really snappy way of addressing that. Like one phrase, it was something like, "Glam is about disillusion and illusion." So, like, it's the disillusionment of the post sixties thing, and illusion as in just artifice, because. The 60s is all about realness and, you know, and like um, truth. I think that's the dominant spirit at the time, whether it's a band like the Fugs uh, or it's, I think, one of the early counterculture big papers is called The Realist. It's about, you know, we speak the truth of, you know, Lenny Bruce stuff, the truth of drugs, the truth of sex, the hairy reality of our bodies. Um, State oppression. Yeah, and a sort of Rousseau-esque thing of back to nature in a way as a, right, as a right, current. Right. Also, there's amplification and there's trippy light shows. It's not entirely back to nature, but it's a, a big idea that the modern world sucks because uh, it's brought us napalm and pollution, and we've got to kind of create this Edenic new culture. And then that's all, you know, people see that's not going to happen. So the whole idea of a whole collective emancipation is abandoned, and it's like individual roots to stardom, you know, is what people pursue. And then also this disillusion, this sort of, you know, that's where I think the whole interest in the Weimar Republic and cabaret comes into it as well. This sort of, what's the, what's the word? Is it culture pessimismus? I think there's a bit of that yeah, yeah. vibe in the early 70s. Yeah, sure. Kind of in a fun way, though. Like, I kind of have fun with the idea of, you know, what's she saying, cabaret? She says, divine decadence, darling. You know, that's that sort of whole idea of everything's falling apart, so let's party and get high and wear you know brightly colored clothes there's a bit of that going on no i think you're right so simon thanks very much that was fantastic that's exactly what we were hoping for and uh this sure it will not be the last time drag you on here yeah well it's good fun i, I really enjoyed chatting. yeah very nice very nice to catch up and hear your thoughts thanks for listening everybody bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.